Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Toronto, Canada to discuss the management of ARDS in the era of COVID-19. Yeah, my name is uh, Eddie Fan. I'm uh, an intensivist at the University Health Network in Toronto and an associate professor of medicine also at the University of Toronto. Great, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Eddie. Um, today we'll be discussing um, the management of ARDS in the era of COVID-19. Um, and uh, for the benefit of our audience, maybe you could just uh, tell us what is ARDS before we move on to uh, the management and uh, the details of COVID-19. Sure. ARDS stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Um, important in the name is the fact that this is a syndrome and not a disease. Uh, it can be caused by a, a wide variety of uh, risk factors or conditions, uh, such as pneumonia, such as viral pneumonia, uh, and here today we're talking mainly about COVID, aspiration, trauma, these sorts of things. It leads to uh, a clinical presentation of hypoxemic respiratory failure due to non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema uh, with inflammatory leak due to the injury uh, to the lungs. Great, that's a good, uh, a great definition. So before we get to COVID-19, maybe you could describe for us what uh, challenges clinicians uh, typically face when diagnosing and managing ARDS, and then after that, we could go into uh, the COVID-19 patients. Sure. Um, I think uh, what the data tells us is that challenges for clinicians in the diagnosis of ARDS to start with focus mainly around recognition. Um, uh, we performed a study called LungSafe, which was a global epidemiologic study that clearly demonstrated that clinicians have a hard time recognizing ARDS and that it's uh, typically under-recognized, uh, ranging from about only 50% recognition in patients with milder forms of ARDS, uh, but much higher rates of recognition, nearly 80% in patients who have severe ARDS. And again, this is not surprising. The more severe the presentation of the syndrome, the more likely a clinician would be to recognize it as such. Um, and we believe, based on our current definition of ARDS, that some of this under-recognition is probably due to the fact that there is uh, this chest X-ray criteria uh, for looking for bilateral opacities, which is the radiographic correlation of the non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema uh, that we see. And we know, again, from many studies uh, that there's poor inter-observer reliability around classifying an X-ray as being consistent with ARDS or, or not being consistent with ARDS. Um, and this probably is a big factor in this uh, challenge that clinicians have for identifying patients as having ARDS. And then related to the management then is the fact that if you're having problems labeling or identifying patients as ARDS, then this leads to a challenge in management because if you don't think the patient has ARDS, then you're unlikely to use ARDS management strategies. So again, as an example would be something like strict adherence to low tidal volume ventilation, which we know is beneficial in patients with ARDS, might not be implemented by clinicians if they don't recognize patients as having ARDS. Um, again, in the lung safe study, we, we saw that less than two-thirds of patients with ARDS received a tidal volume that we would consider lung protective, less than eight mils per kilo predicted body weight, and plateau pressure, which is also an important component of lung protective ventilation, was only measured in about 40% of patients. And again, so these, these, these challenges of recognition uh, for diagnosis and management are therefore linked. Um, and you might imagine, again, the use of other measures that could be beneficial, such as higher PEEP and prone positioning in more severe patients, could also be effective if clinicians don't believe the patient 
uh, or don't recognize the patient as having ARDS. So uh, your, your team uh, put together a paper in uh, 2017 in the Blue Journal, um, I think the May issue, where you'll summarize some key recommendations about uh, ARDS. Maybe you could just uh, review some of those, um, and then after that, we can uh, move on to COVID-19 and see what's different about it. Sure. Um, so the, our paper in the Blue Journal was actually a multi-society guideline sponsored by the American Thoracic Society, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and the Society of Care, Care, Critical Care Medicine, uh, focused on six interventions for patients with ARDS. Um, so we made six recommendations uh, on these interventions. So we made strong recommendations for the use of lung protective ventilation, and so that's low tidal volume, low, low plateau pressure ventilation in all patients with ARDS and a strong recommendation for prone positioning for more than 12 hours in patients with severe ARDS. Um, based on two large randomized control trials, we made a strong recommendation against the routine use of high-frequency oscillation in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. And then we also made conditional recommendations or suggestions for the use of higher PEEP and recruitment maneuvers in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. And then finally, for the sixth intervention, um, we couldn't make a formal recommendation for or against the use of VV ECMO in patients with severe ARDS based on the data that was available at the time that we came up with a guideline, although I would say that accumulating evidence since then suggests there's likely a beneficial role for VV ECMO in patients with severe ARDS. Great. I think you've uh, really set a great background for this discussion. So let's move into the meat of the uh, podcast uh, dealing with uh, COVID-19. So in with COVID-19, what are the unique challenges uh, that clinicians are seeing in either diagnosing and managing uh, ARDS? Well, I think the first and foremost, as we discussed before about the sort of typical challenges of diagnosing and management, managing ARDS in the, in the non-COVID period was around recognition. I feel that some of those things might have been improved in the sense that the spotlight currently is on COVID-19. Everybody seems to be focused on this idea. And so recognizing that likely any patient that presents with COVID-19 and gets the ICU probably has ARDS. So recognition might be uh, somewhat improved from that point of view. Um, but I think the challenges are really structural uh, in the sense that I think, first and foremost, that the sheer number of patients in many jurisdictions has been overwhelming uh, for clinicians, healthcare providers, and the whole health system in general um, to manage patients and resources effectively. And I think one of the challenges that that's led to is the fact that in some places that have been overrun with COVID-19, non-intensivists or non-specialists are managing these patients, uh, which is also very challenging. Um, so apply, diagnosing and applying some of these interventions that we know to be important in the management of ARDS patients uh, could be difficult. Um, I think the second unique challenge uh, that is important is that there's been an explosion of information about this pandemic, um, both from the traditional media, social media, you know, journals such as the Blue Journal and professional societies like ATS. And sometimes they've painted a somewhat conflicting picture of what patients look like and what could be done. Um, and this is added to the challenge for clinicians in terms of deciding what's real versus what's the hypothesis and interesting hypothesis or conjecture um, and what to do therefore. So I think it's important for societies like ATS and journals like the Blue Journal to help to provide data, provide it with open access um, and uh, have uh, this kind of information available for clinicians uh, to provide uh, real information from clinicians and researchers who have experience in the management of COVID-19 patients. 
You mentioned the fact that there's uh, conflicting information out there. Maybe you could uh, uh, summarize that for us. Uh, uh, you've had the opportunity to see these publications come out or these reports come out, and what strikes you as being different uh, amongst the different uh, publications or reports? So maybe I could focus on just one example. Um, so one example that seems to, at least from what I've seen in the social media, some of the case series I've presented, is this uh, conflicting notion of, patients' uh, responsiveness to, say, higher levels of PEEP and or prone positioning. So I would say that uh, as the timeline of COVID-19 has progressed, early reports seem to suggest that these patients had relatively preserved compliance, um, but very hypoxemic. Um, but despite that fact that many jurisdictions were reporting that these patients were exquisitely responsive to higher levels of PEEP and or prone positioning, leading to an improvement in their hypoxemia, and then as the, as the t timeline or the pandemic uh, progressed, then we started to get reports from other jurisdictions suggesting, well, some of these patients actually with very preserved compliance and severe hypoxemia don't seem very responsive to higher levels of PEEP. They don't seem very responsive to prone positioning. Um, some sort of expert recommendations came out suggesting that maybe we shouldn't be employing these measures in these patients, and that led to a shift. And then now, again, some other reports are coming out that, well, maybe there are some patients that do and some patients that don't, and we might be able to split patients into different groups that could or couldn't. So that's an example where I think it's led to some confusion for clinicians who are starting to take care of COVID-19 patients as to what the right strategy would be. Do we use higher PEEP? Do we use prone positioning? Is there a way to figure out which patients could or couldn't respond? I think that's a good maybe example of uh, some of the conflicting reports that have come out from various places and from various sources around the world. Agree. So I want to dial back to the, to the diagnosis of ARDS in patients with COVID-19. Um, as you mentioned, there's the imaging issue, um, uh, looking for bilateral opacity, but there's also this question about how ARDS should not have a cardiac etiology or not predominantly cardiac, yet there's been reports that some patients with COVID-19 can get a myocarditis or some sort of cardiomyopathy. How would you tease that apart to say, you know, I think this patient has ARDS versus I think it's a, it's cardiac and etiology. Uh, so again, I think the Berlin uh, definition criteria provides a framework for helping to sort some of these things out. Um, again, uh, as per the Berlin definition, to try to rule out hydrostatic or cardiogenic causes of pulmonary edema, um, when you have an obvious risk factor uh, that could lead to ARDS, and again, COVID-19 as a viral pneumonia is a very good risk factor, you usually don't have to rule out uh, cardiogenic causes, because as you mentioned, um, the definition allows, and even the original definition, the AECC definition, allows for the coexistence of cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, it's just that when you're talking about ARDS, it shouldn't, the hypoxemia and the pulmonary edema shouldn't primarily be due to um, to cardiac causes. Um, for, for situations where, for instance, we're now starting to understand there is this component of myocardial involvement, cardiac injury, rising troponins, evidence of biventricular failure on echocardiography, uh, then again, then perhaps some of those investigations could be helpful, getting an echocardiogram to understand what the um, heart function could be. Perhaps biochemical measures like BMP could also be useful. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's up to the clinician's um, ability to uh, take all the information in and make their best determination of whether the patient is uh, primarily having problems due to ARDS or whether they're primarily due to cardiac failure. I would say that, again, this is another area where we're just starting to learn more about the nature of this cardiac involvement, um, whether there seems to be 
patients who are primarily having cardiac involvement, having myocarditis, and having cardiogenic shock from that, or whether cardiac involvement is a late manifestation of maybe one of the systems that uh, one of the systems that gets involved in uh, COVID-19 infection and sort of the final common injury or the multi-organ failure that ensues. Uh, these might be also important considerations in trying to determine what the primary cause of the hypoxemia is. Gotcha. So let's turn our attention to the management then, um, and we could maybe just go through those six recommendations that you had in 2017 and uh, get your opinion as to whether you would tweak anything in uh, patients with COVID-19. So your first one was low um, tidal uh, ventilation at 4 to 8 moles per kilogram predicted body weight with a plateau pressure of less than 30. Um, you would probably do the same in patients with uh, uh, COVID-19? Yes. I think um, that's really the starting point and the foundation of uh, lung protection in these kinds of patients. Gotcha. And then in, in your article, you mentioned um, the role of uh, possibly a spontaneous breathing and whether or not uh, driving pressure should be used versus plateau pressure. Maybe you could uh, expound on that uh, for us. Yeah, so I think at the moment, um, just again, not only in for COVID-19, but in, in ARDS from other causes, uh, spontaneous breathing is a major uh, challenge. We are trying to understand more and more about the safety or the deleterious effects of spontaneous breathing, depending on the circumstances of uh, the patient and uh, the degree of their ARDS. I would say that there's mounting experimental evidence suggesting that early spontaneous breathing, in particular in those with very severe lung injury, seems to be harmful and uh, mitigating that could uh, lead to benefits. Um, but again, I would say that uh, similarly for COVID-19, as for usual ARDS patients, um, we're, we're get, getting more experience, getting more data as to how best to manage these patients. And the starting point, as, as per your first uh, question, should be standard ARDS management until we have more rigorous data to suggest otherwise. Gotcha. And in terms of prone positioning, um, uh, you, you mentioned the, the, the challenges that some people uh, may face, but one of the other challenges that uh, other groups, especially where there's a lack of PPE, is having enough uh, personnel to where it's actually safe to do uh, prone positioning. Um, what would your recommendations be in patients who there's sufficient PPE versus in other situations where there isn't? Yeah, I think this is obviously uh, a systems uh, challenge to the management of these patients. I think no healthcare workers should be asked to uh, put themselves in a dangerous position where they're not adequately protected to provide the best care that they can to their pa to their patients. So I think that's a that's a starting point. Um, but again, I think that at present, what we would say is that based on the guidelines uh, and based on our current knowledge of um, ARDS and COVID-19, that uh, in patients who don't have a contraindication with um, moderate to severe ARDS, the trial of prone positioning uh, should be undertaken. Um, again, presuming that uh, you have the personnel, the, the human resources, which again, seems to be a very important limiting factor in many jurisdictions undergoing an outbreak in COVID-19 to perform this safely. And as you mentioned, who can also have adequate access to PPE to perform um, this procedure safely. But uh, again, our current uh, um, guidelines, both in the ATS guidelines and the subsequent guidelines published by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines would suggest a trial of prone positioning in these patients. Got you. And then uh, I would assume uh, no high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in these patients until further data is available? 
Yeah, I, again, I would say that the routine use of high-frequency oscillation seems to uh, lead to more harms than uh, benefits. Uh, so I wouldn't routinely use it in these patients. Um, again, in the non-COVID uh, situation, we have used high-frequency oscillation occasionally as a rescue strategy for severe hypoxemia in patients who didn't turn out to uh, respond to prone positioning and weren't ECMO candidates. And again, you might you might <clears throat> consider similarly in the COVID patients that as a rescue strategy, there is an individual patient data meta-analysis that was also published in the in the blue journal. Uh, showing that uh, although the early routine use was not beneficial, there was a subset of patients who, when experiencing severe hypoxemia with a PF ratio less than 65, seemed to de derive a benefit from using HFO as a rescue strategy. So in COVID-19 patients where they fail other conventional measures and they're not otherwise um, candidates for ECMO, you could consider the use of HFO as a rescue strategy. Okay, great. So let's turn our attention to the conditional recommendations you gave, um, and maybe you could tell us uh, your strategy uh, for employing PEEP and recruitment maneuvers um, and uh, how a clinician should go about it. Yeah, I think uh, at the moment, um, again, because of our evolving knowledge since the uh, guidelines were uh, published, is that moving more away from the routine use of recruitment maneuvers, uh, particularly following the results of the alveolar recruitment trial in South America, but certainly um, continuing with the recommendation in um, ARDS patients and in COVID-19 patients for a use of uh, higher PEEP um, in those who have moderate to severe ARDS. And uh, again, um, there are many ways to skin this uh, cat, uh, many ways to set higher PEEP, and uh, in line with the recommendations we made in the guideline, I would suggest that uh, a strategy that was employed in one of the three larger randomized control trials, so the alveoli trial, LOVES, or um, EXPRESS, might be a very good starting point for a strategy of employing higher PEEP. So two of those trials employed PEEP, some modification of the PEEP FO2 table to set higher PEEP, and in the EXPRESS trial, they tried to increase PEEP until plateau pressure reached a maximum of 28 centimeters of water. So any one of those strategies might be a good starting point for setting higher peak in these patients. Gotcha. And then let's turn our attention to ECMO. Um, I assume there's going to be a lot of data coming out soon um, uh, about the use of ECMO. What are your thoughts uh, in patients with COVID-19? So again, I think, uh, as you said, uh, the experience around the world continues to grow. Um, interestingly, um, ECMO at least from uh, data published in China and that from Italy, suggests that ECMO is used probably in a similar uh, proportion than, uh, of patients as it was in, uh, in non-pandemic times. So about 10% of patients received ECMO. I think ECMO is another uh, situation where much as you were asking about prone positioning, which uh, human resources come to bear and PPE is also a consideration. It takes a team of people uh, both to put the patient onto ECMO and then probably an expanded team of people to take care of patients on ECMO. So in, in um, jurisdictions where a severe outbreak is uh, occurring, there may be a very limited resource, human resources to both um, initiate and maintain patients on ECMO. So that's an important consideration and something I think our colleagues from Italy uh, have mentioned on a previous ATS podcast. Um, but at least from a recommendation point of view, I think, again, while we're gathering more information, we would go with the data that we currently have for ARDS, which would suggest that patients failing uh, conventional measures that we talked about, low tidal volume ventilation, uh, higher levels of PEEP, a trial of prone positioning, 
and who otherwise don't have any contraindications to uh, ECMO should be considered for VB ECMO uh, in uh, centers where that's available. Great. And then what about interventions such as uh, neuromuscular blockade or inhaled vasodilators? Um, what um, conditions would you consider those? Um, and are there any uh, uh, caution uh, details that you would uh, give clinicians about using those interventions? Um, yeah, I would say that, uh, again, from the available data from ARDS, uh, I wouldn't recommend any routine use of inhaled uh, vasodilators. I think maybe some of the caveats around that, again, might be in patients where you demonstrate uh, perhaps uh, evidence of severe RV dysfunction or pulmonary hypertension, and perhaps the adjunctive use of inhaled pulmonary vasodilators could be uh, useful in those patients. And again, perhaps some of those patients would be those who have concomitant cardiac involvement uh, that might be leading to that syndrome. In terms of neuro neuromuscular blockade, I think, again, in uh, patients who are progressing towards more severe forms of lung injury um, uh, and are on deep sedation who are experiencing severe ventilator asynchrony, who have very high uh, uh, respiratory drive and very large inspiratory efforts, all of which may contribute to uh, worsening or perpetuating the underlying lung injury. These might be patients that we would consider um, following deep sedation, a trial of neuromuscular blockade. Gotcha. And then I want to turn attention to the use of um, high-flow nasal cannula oxygen. Um, uh, there was a suggestion in the last couple of years that um, having patients on high-flow nasal cannula oxygen instead of uh, uh, intubating them, allowing them to receive that kind of therapy, protected against ventilator-induced lung injury. But obviously with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, there's a lot of concern about aerosolization. Um, what are your thoughts on a high-flow nasal cannula oxygen? Yeah, so I think there's uh, this is another area, going back to some of your earlier questions, about where there's been conflicting reports and conflicting recommendations. So if you look at the WHO guidelines, they, sort of, they suggest a trial of high-frequency nasal cannula over non-invasive ventilation where possible. But I think, uh, and certainly my own institution, part of the challenge has been around this idea of what is the safe application of high-flow nasal cannula and what is our understanding of the risk of something like high-flow nasal cannula uh, used as an aerosol-generating medical procedure? Uh, so I think at the moment, there's a lot of institutional uh, variability on how infection control practitioners have viewed the risk of putting patients on high-flow nasal cannula um, with some institutions, such as my own, currently uh, barring the use of high-flow nasal cannula because of the perceived risk for uh, practitioners. Um, and aerosol generation to others, other sites using high-flow nasal cannula, but employing a lot more uh, strategies around containment. So, for instance, only to put, putting patients on high-flow nasal cannula in uh, negative uh, pressure rooms or rooms with HEPA filters and, and clinicians who interact with those patients wearing full airborne precautions. So I think that's been part of the challenge um, with high-flow nasal cannula. The second has been this idea that some patients who, even in jurisdictions where they're using high-flow nasal cannula, um, some of these patients with COVID-19 seem to uh, decline precipitously, um, and so there's been also this idea, a strategy of early intubation in patients who are getting worsening hypoxemia uh, has been uh, promulgated. Again, here I would say that it's a bit challenging because we need more data as to, just as you described, is a strategy of early intubation actually beneficial for these patients? Could these patients actually have uh, um, improved and progressed and maybe uh, had less iatrogenic complications from 
remaining on high flow nasal cannula. These are the kinds of data that we need to collect more systematically as the pandemic uh, progresses to understand better what the right strategy is in COVID-19 patients. So I think that's a good segue into maybe asking you, um, based on what's happened in the last couple of months, what do you think the research priorities or the research questions that need to be urgently answered in the next few months um, in publications that are coming out um, in top journals? Um, if you were reviewing a paper, uh, what questions would you want investigators to have answered? Well, I think uh, like many uh, clinicians in the field who are managing these patients, it's really to have an understanding of what what is the right management strategy for these patients. Um, are there ways to identify or, say, risk stratify patients uh, to understand those that, uh, just as to your last question, those who might be able to to make it safely on uh, sort of more less invasive forms of support versus those who we know might um, deteriorate quickly and therefore a more prophylactic or proactive approach to their management uh, would be uh, would be reasonable. So I think, you know, data around um, prediction or risk stratification scores could be very useful uh, for clinicians in this, in this uh, uh, pandemic and also help plan resource management so that the ones that we know that need to get to the ICU earlier and use that uh, valuable resources, which is shrinking in some places, uh, versus those that might be managed and monitored more carefully in other settings. Um, and then questions, just as we talked about on this podcast, sort of refining our understanding of um, whether COVID-19 uh, truly is um, um, a very uh, uh, typical uh, form of ARDS and the wide spectrum of ARDS. That you know, the syndrome is heterogeneous. That's uh, that's part of the idea of it being a syndrome, and whether these management strategies that we're currently employing. Um, work as effectively in, in these patients as they do in, in other ARDS patients. And, and then what's the role of diuresis? There's been a number of reports coming out that limiting fluid intake in these patients is essential uh, to improve oxygenation. Um, has that been your experience or from reports that you've seen? Um, so again, uh, you know, I would say I've seen both sides, uh, which again is the is the is the problem for many clinicians. So I think in general, we would advocate for in, in ARDS patients and probably critically ill patients in general that outside of the phase of acute resuscitation, that a strategy of conservative fluid management and perhaps even active de-resuscitation would be useful in these patients, and in particular with ARDS, as you mentioned, that a conservative fluid strategy uh, helps to lead to probably uh, a quicker resolution of uh, lung injury and faster liberation from mechanical ventilation. However, there's been uh, reports that uh, these patients with COVID-19 seem prone to acute kidney injury and that overly aggressive diuresis or um, too strict uh, conservative fluid balance may exacerbate that problem. So here's another example of conflicting reports or recommendations and, again, where a more rigorous and systematic approach to data um, could help us to understand what the right strategy in terms of fluid management would be in these patients. Gotcha. So making sure that we individualize our care for the patient. So um, you've had the opportunity to manage a number of patients with ARDS and review a number of, of publications in ARDS. What are the common mistakes that clinicians make in managing these patients? Um, and I know you've covered several of them uh, in this podcast, but maybe you could just review for our audience stuff that they should pay attention to that most people don't think about. Um 
Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think it might be a bit challenging to label them as common mistakes. I think, uh, again, clearly in the in the time of this pandemic, um, you know, clinicians, uh, nurses, healthcare providers, and whole healthcare systems are under a lot of strain. So I think we just need to acknowledge that, and everybody is clearly doing everything they, they can to provide the best care to their patients. Um, again, I might just emphasize that. Uh, um, that employing the evidence-based practices that we're aware of and some of these which have been codified in, in the guidelines, both from the ATS, the WHO, and the surrounding census campaign for clinicians would be a good starting point for the management of these patients. And then again, as we get more data and information from other sources, we could uh, modify those recommendations as needed. And clearly that guidelines are just that, they're guidelines. And as you said, we need to individualize the care to the patient that's in front of us. So the guidelines represent a good starting point, but depending on what we see in our patients, um, we need to individualize the care that we provide to them. So I would say maybe just a recognition that um, the guidelines represent a good starting point for the management of these patients, and then individualizing the care that we provide to them uh, for the patient in front of us is important, and then keeping an eye out for new data and not just anecdotes, reports, or some tweet that you see flying across your screen, but actual data to help inform us about changes that we need to make to our approach as the pandemic continues. Gotcha. So, um, Eddie, it's been a, a, an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Um, as we draw towards the end of this podcast, um, I just want to give you the opportunity to um, maybe give our audience any pearls or um, any comments uh, in the preparation for this podcast that we haven't had the opportunity to address as yet? Um, I just want to maybe take the opportunity to thank all the healthcare providers around the world who are working tirelessly to help their patients and help uh, collect information and data to help bring a swift end to the pandemic. I think that's very important. Um, and certainly we, as many places around the world, have benefited from the openness and um, of reports and the sharing of information from countries around the world who have experienced the, the pandemic ahead of other uh, jurisdictions. That's obviously been a very helpful learning experience. And then just to, again, say that uh, how important it is to for clinicians to focus on the data. Um, I think uh, there's been a lot of reports uh, everywhere in the, in the era, of, era of social media. There's uh, It's sometimes hard to separate, um, you know, truth from data uh, and reports and anecdotes. So I think we need to um, be careful um, and we need to organize to get to work to collect the data that we need. Um, that might be the most important message. I think Derek Angus wrote a nice editorial recently about how we need to balance learning while doing during this pandemic. We need to learn better, get the data we need so that we can provide the best care uh, to our patients. Um, and that might be the, uh, the message to leave the listeners with. That's an outstanding message. Um, to our audience, I would definitely encourage you to read uh, Dr. Eddie Fan's uh, publication in the May uh, 2017 uh, uh, publication of the Blue Journal. Um, it was the ATS um, uh, and SACM uh, publication on mechanical ventilation in adults with ARDS. It's a great starting point uh, for those who are managing these patients in the ICU. Eddie, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, and we wish you all the best in the coming months. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for the invitation. A big thank you to Dr. Eddie Fan, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.